0: It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Elizabeth, I don't know if you're a Charles Dickens fan, but that phrase might be used today to describe politics, both nationally and around the world. Yet many clinicians are taking up a political role now in advocating for their patients, especially as it relates to drug prices. We talk with a few of them in this month's Joy of Medicine podcast. I'm Charlie Cummings.
1: And I'm Elizabeth Tracy. Charlie and I had the pleasure of talking with Jeremy Green, a physician at Johns Hopkins, a medical historian and author, and a political activist on drug pricing, both on the state and national level.
2: How do you muster the moxie required to take on big pharma or big government or big healthcare? How do you shine a light that everybody sees? And ultimately, Transforms thought. It's an almost non-ending enormous adversary that doesn't go away and has seems to have resources that are inexhaustible. I have to admit I rarely think of what I'm doing as just taking on big pharma or just combating the entirety of a broken healthcare system. I understand the way you're framing the question that either of those things sound impossible and you know, like sort of a Don Quixote tilting at windmills kind of task, why take that on to begin with? I really tend to focus on the patient in front of me in clinic. If you focus on the patient in front of you any given day, you recognize that there are so many different ways in which an individual physician can really advocate for the person in front of them. When I'm acting as an advocate, it's not really about me. It's about me as someone who is in a position to be able to speak for a number of people who don't necessarily get spoken for, such as why it is unconscionable for people who don't have insurance in the United States today to not be able to afford insulin when that drug was discovered in 1921, first patented in 1923.
1: Jeremy recalls a recent experience with a patient.
2: I saw a patient who came in suffering from the complications of an asthma attack. Actually, her asthma attack was so severe it looked like she was on the verge of needing to be hospitalized. We managed to bring her down in clinic and get her safely managed on oral steroids and that she did okay. She had been seen before and she had been given the right medicine. She had been given albuterol as a meter dose inhaler. And this is a drug that many people think of as generic. It had been generic. It became only available by brand name fairly recently due to a side effect of the way that we chose to respond to the ozone hole. So when physicians write a prescription for albuterol, this old drug, they don't necessarily realize that the puff can cost $80, and depending on your patient and how close she is to the poverty line, this particular patient is uninsured, was working two jobs, didn't speak English, at first couldn't afford the albuterol inhaler, then finally managed to find a way to afford it and wasn't instructed how to use it. Basically was spraying it like a banaca sprayer into the back of her mouth. And so the whole process by which she became an urgent or perhaps emergent case in my clinic was entirely preventable and related to deeper social structures. Why is an old drug so expensive?
1: Sharita Golden, Vice Chair of the Department of Medicine at Johns Hopkins and a diabetes expert, credits a patient with bringing her to advocacy.
3: At University of Virginia, where I went to medical school, you had to do your first history and physical with a preceptor. So you went and saw the patient, and then you had to write everything up and present it. And this gentleman was only 35, and he had type 1 diabetes, and he had every complication. So he was blind in one eye. He had had a partial toe amputation And then he also had undergone a kidney transplant for end stage renal disease. He had such severe low blood sugars that he'd had two motor vehicle accidents and had his license revoked. So he was completely disabled. And I just remember being really struck by his story because he actually knew all of his medicines. He was very organized about his care. So this wasn't someone who hadn't taken care of himself. But I think at the time we didn't really know how to adequately treat diabetes. So when I was a fourth-year medical student two years later, the results of the Diabetes Control and Complications trial was published. And it showed that with tight glucose control, you could prevent all those devastating complications. So I realized that I'd be able to really prevent those kind of complications in the future by aggressively treating diabetes, which goes back to the insulin issue. So we want to have the flexibility as clinicians to be able to choose the regimen that's going to be most effective. Sherita says the
1: meteoric rise in price of various insulins leads her to become an even more vociferous advocate with the American Diabetes Association.
3: This is a huge challenge, and it's one of the reasons that the cost of care for diabetes has skyrocketed recently. So I think it's really critical for us to be advocates for our patients, and so to identify a professional organization that allows them to advocate in a more impactful way. Those are ways that we can really advocate because as frontline clinicians, we can actually share with those who make some of these decisions what the real challenges are. In a way, it's like taking that frustration that you have about your prescription for your patient who really needs it being denied and really taking it to the people who can make policies to change those decisions. So it makes you feel like you're actually a part of the solution for your patient.
1: Lee Bittison, Vice Chair for Clinical Affairs at Johns Hopkins, says battling for patients because of issues related to drug prices is one source of clinician burnout.
0: I think drug pricing has become a real problem in a number of different arenas. There is strictly the cost issue, and then there's the regulatory burden that's associated with it, or the paperwork burden that's associated with it for providers. Prior authorizations, those types of activities that end up being nothing more than essentially meaningless paperwork and taking people away from doing what they really love to do, which is engaging with patients to help them have better outcomes. I think it's significant because it is a piece of a larger context. So the regulatory burden, the checking of the boxes, the being sure that every form is filled out and form filled out correctly and in triplicate, so to speak, is a big piece of what's frustrating clinicians. Is it solely the issue of prior authorization? No, but that's a piece of that activity, a piece of one that probably grates in a particular way because it feels unjust.
1: Are you galvanized to advocate? Shannon Brownlee, Senior Vice President of the Lowen Institute, which seeks to reform healthcare via a grassroots approach, invites clinicians to join in.
4: What the Lowen Institute wants to do is help us reimagine our healthcare system, our medical services delivery system, in a way that makes it better for clinicians as well as for patients. When you get right down to it, So much of health care and caring about people is about this interaction between individuals, between nurse and patient, between doctor and patient, between nurse and doctor, and the quality of those relationships and those interactions has been degraded by the way we've built this system. We have industrialized medicine to the point where burnout doesn't even convey the depth of despair that many clinicians feel, and the sadness that they feel at the loss of that sacred space between clinician and patient.
1: Tell me how physicians can get involved, how nurses can get involved.
4: So our other initiative that really can get clinicians involved is the Right Care Alliance, which is a grassroots movement to improve health care and health. Our first campaign this year is on drug prices which we all know are skyrocketing and they're out of control and there aren't really good mechanisms for getting them in control. This social movement, which is now 35,000 people strong, it includes clinicians, but it also includes patients, lawyers, community activists. We hope that this on-the-ground action in state houses, maybe at the national level, but mostly at the local level, will start to move the needle on drug prices. We also have a set of councils for the Right Care Alliance and the clinicians who are involved in the councils are effectively our brain trust.
1: Would it be your assertion that these kinds of things are going to provide sufficient payback, that it will help ameliorate some of the many problems we hear from clinicians about their practice?
4: Clinicians feel powerless right now. The institution, the manager, the CEO, the payer, somebody else is running their lives. And I think they kind of have two choices. They can either feel terribly powerless, and try to soldier on, or they can somehow get involved in some way of making change.
1: Lee says both time for self and others is necessary
0: keep doing the right thing. I think that it's critical for us as providers to continue to speak about things that we see as incredibly problematic and to continue to press for the change that's necessary. I also think that it's possible to get a little burned out in that advocacy, so trying to take time to take a break and recognize that there are multiple people working on the issue I think is important too.
1: Jeremy invokes the power of the election cycle.
2: I think there's a process of staving off fatalism. One can say, oh, this problem has existed for so long, it keeps on getting worse every year, and yet nothing is done about it therefore nothing is doable. And I think we really push back on that last process and we think actually there's so many things that we can do and let's try and list as many of them as we can and then bend our tasks to the ones that we think are the most likely. And then we'll reassess come November and we'll, bend it. we'll put our tools to the ones we think are most likely then.
1: That's this month's joy in medicine. Thanks again to Brian Garibaldi, physician and musician, for our marvelous music. I'm Elizabeth Tracy.
2: This podcast series is brought to you in part through the generosity of the John Connolly Foundation, which focuses on medicine and humanism.